Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran McGraw. I'm, I'm sorry if, if I sounded slightly distracted, it's because Kieran gave me a big old smile as we started, which, I mean, Kieran's normally chipper, but he gave me a lovely smile there. I was quite, quite taken aback. Morning, Kieran. That's a, that's a good way to start a Sunday morning. Thank you. Well, it's nice to see you beaming from ear to ear, Kevin. I don't know what could have possibly caused that, of course. Joining the modern era, finally, we've got one of those trendy coaches who run up and down the touchline in white trainers. So now, now, now what we have to do is get get rid of, throw all the old people out of the game, Kieran. Now we've got one. That includes me and you. Oh, that's true. Fair point. (laughs) Didn't think that through, did I? Um, it's questions day, Kieran. Un- unfortunately, there is one big news story before we start the questions. And as my old nan, God love her, used to say, it's deja vu all over again. Because um, we we had the discussion about Rochdale and now Torquay United are in a very similar situation. They, they announced that they're going to go into, into administration. What, what's happened there, Kieran, and what's the prospects for the club? Um, well, what's happened is that they've been losing a, a million pounds a year. Um, they're in you know, National League South. By all accounts, they're one of the very few full-time teams in National League South. You know, we, we have our secret National League South executive who we often contact. And uh, I think he, he would be slightly surprised to... to so so that's, that's the first question I'm asking myself. If, if you're running at a huge loss, why don't you go part-time like everybody else? Um, so the the club is owned by a guy called Clark Osborne, who's 72. I think it's fair to say he's had a bit of a checkered history in relation to lower league football. So he, he doesn't come with uh, high recommendations from other entities to which he's had contact. But I, th- I think uh, I think the technical phrase is that he's seen his ass, and uh, you know he's. he's he, for, for all of the the criticism that's been levelled, I mean, and people don't, clearly don't like taking criticism, he has been funding those losses. Um, he's funding those losses via a company called Riviera Stadium Limited. And I've looked at the accounts of Riviera Stadium, and they owe somebody or something or some entity, uh, you know, the thick end of five million pounds, which they then effectively put into the football club. Uh, but there's no I, there's no indication as to where that money has come from. So sort of the money trail has. Uh, tailed off, so so that's that's the position they're in. Um, where do we go from here? Well, assuming that the administrator is formally appointed, the administrator will now take over the day to day running of the club. Will get together a list of assets, um, and again, looking at the uh, Torquay accounts, they've got property assets which are worth you know a few million. So that's got to be attractive. Yeah, when we spoke to Simon that. Uh, at Rochdale, he says he was looking for two million pounds for Rochdale. Well, uh, you know, if, if these property assets uh, you know, in in Devon are of the value that the club's got, and then those are the cost assets, then then you know a two million pound price for Torquay United would be uh, you know, quite a good one for anybody buying the club. So the administrator's job is to a to see how much money have we got to run the club, and that's that's a key issue. So where's that funding going to come from, and then has got to market the club. With a, with a view to selling it as a going concern. And whoever buys the club 
acquires the assets but not the liabilities. There's a couple of things there, Ken. I suppose if you're already full-time, it makes it very difficult to go part-time because you're going to lose a lot of the staff that you have, the playing staff. The, the idea is probably not to go full-time in the first place, but clearly that was a, a sign of ambition. Talking about their accounts, Kieran, so you say you're confident that they, they owe several million pounds, but the accounts don't show who they owe that money to. Is is that something to worry about? Is that normal practice for accounts? Why why, why, this, why is this sum even in, in, in the figures if, if it's not revealing who it's owed to? Yeah, I thought you have to follow the crumb trail. Um, Torquay probably are in the region of £5 million to this company, Riviera Stadium Limited, which right. was set up by Clark Osborne. Riviera Stadium's only asset is £5 million due from Torquay United. And on the other side of the account, you go, well, somebody must have lent that money in the first place to Riviera Stadium Limited. And if it's Clark Osborne, I would have expected his name to be there, but I can't see it. So that's just left me scratching my head. I, you know, I, I presume it's him because otherwise, why well, set up the company? But you know, at times like this, and if, you know, clearly it's you know, it's sleepless nights for fans, it's sleepless nights for employees. Um, you know, every town is is proud of its football club. And I remember going to Torquay United probably about fifteen years ago for a, you know, an FA Cup second round or third round game. And, it, and like like all of these trips, they're it, they're great days out. Um, and we don't want to see you know, this decline in football, which which appears to be coming a bit more than a drip at present, continuing even further. So they they do have this money owed, but that's the problem of the person to whom it's been lent. The, the administrators will say, um, tough, you know, and there's no evidence that they've got a, a charge or a mortgage over the assets. So... Um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how the administrators market the uh, the, the product. Yeah, we we need to do a bit of digging about. We need to talk to Torquay fans because I, I spoke to a couple during the week, and they're, they're understanding that the council have some sort of stake in the stadium or 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 the club, which we can't ascertain uh, or or verify. So any information would be uh, gratefully received from Torquay fans. Aren't, I'm slightly worried here. I mean, two two in a week doesn't make a pattern yet, but it it just worries me that other owners will look round and go, "Thank God for that." I thought I was the only one, and just say, "I can't do it either." So it it just worries me that there's going to be a knock on effect, a domino effect. The clubs at that level, as as, as we've said since we first started the pod, <laughs> when you rely on one person chipping in every week. That sometimes that money is going to run out, and for it to happen twice in a week is really worrying. It is. Um, you know, times times are tough. Um, football clubs are also living beyond their means. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not pointing any fingers here, but how on earth is a club in the sixth tier of English football losing twenty grand a week? Yeah, that that to me strikes of well, it's either ambition. We, you know, again, we've heard rumours and stories that Mr. Osborne's, and as we said, as you rightly said, if personal circumstances change for whatever reason, you know, financial, um, health, whatever, then then people's focus moves away, and you're effectively passing the buck on to somebody else. But uh, I, I did some, I, I put out some data yesterday. Um, and, it, and appreciate this is in relation to the Premier League, and Premier League is a is a far different vehicle that when the Premier League started, the average weekly wage was £2,020 a week. Um, If that had kept pace with inflation, it would be something like 3938 And the actual weekly wage is 82000 So football has been spectacularly successful. And the ability to pay the wages in the Premier League is driven by the ability of the Premier League to bring the money in. But that does have a knock-on effect upon expected wage levels as you drop down the tiers, and it does put pressure on those clubs who are ambitious, who want to make the next tier. Now, our first question, Kieran, comes from Max Healy. Strong name, Max Healy. Uh, and it involves Brighton and Napoli. Um, in, in times gone by, Kieran, this would have been my opportunity to go, <laughs> imagine Brighton and Napoli in the same sentence. That's never going to happen, is it? Imagine Brighton and a team from 
But unfortunately, fate and the fact that your team are quite good has got in a way of, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Have you got your tickets for Rome yet? I've got my tickets for Rome. Um, I, th- I think it's fair to say the tickets weren't the problem. The flight was the problem. Ah. And uh, myself and the Baroness were having a heated debate as to whether she was going to the match or not. And she was <laughs> going, Rome's my favourite city. Right, I'll get you a ticket. Oh, but what about the dog? Well, the dog's not coming with us. Um, then we sort of, and by the sort of, you know, after 45 minutes of dithering, um, we finally decided that she was going to go. But I was book, I was, I was on the EasyJet uh, app. Um, I wasn't concentrating because I was having conversation. So I booked the, I booked the flight for the wrong day. Uh-huh. And of course, with EasyJet, you can't get refunds. No. All you can do is is transfer the flight to somewhere else or take up that flight. So now we're going on an ad hoc trip to Copenhagen. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I had to go and book the flight itself just for me, by which stage the price had gone up from 130 quid to 430 quid. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> we, we, were, we were not on speaking terms for a few minutes. That's, that's, uh, well, uh, Ed's just come back from Copenhagen. He did gigs out there. It's a wonderful oh, cool. city. Yeah. Yes. He, oh, no, uh, I love it. I mean, I've, I've it, joined it, Denmark. Yeah, he'll tell you how to pronounce it properly in Danish as well. Um, oh. And also, with, with Brighton playing in Rome, as our our dear friend Julian Chenry, producer of our live show, said, finally, a chance for Alan Mullery to actually get to meet the Pope. <laughs> and we can finally find out whether the Pope's response is the one that Palace fans sing about. <laughs> I just love the idea of the, the Alan Mullery going, oh, finally, I'm going to meet the Pope, and the Pope going, F off, and singing it. Finley likes that idea as well. So anyway, yeah, Maxine, Maxine, so via Copenhagen, Copenhagen, uh, I believe that's how you pronounce it, Kieran. Maxine said, Leo Ostigard moved from Brighton to Napoli in a move said to be worth around £5 million up front with additional clauses that could lead to a final fee of nearing £10 million. Now, Napoli won last season's Scudetto, which may trigger such a clause. Are these clauses easily identifiable in either club's accounts? Or do they disappear into a total for transfer ins and outs in the relevant financial year? Which is, it's kind of a pertinent question, because we've spoken a couple of times recently about information that you can identify in an account sheet, but I certainly wouldn't be able to do. Yes. Um, well, Max, uh, this will appear in Brighton's 2023 accounts, but not in the level of detail that you'd perhaps be liking. Um if you take a look at Brighton's 2022 accounts, and, and this should appear in the accounts of all clubs, so I'm I'm disappointed with some, including some Premier League clubs, that they are they are vaguer beyond vague. Um, you will see something called a contingent asset. Now, a contingent asset is a possible future uh, income stream or asset which will arise on the basis of an uncertain future event. So. When it comes to football transfers, and again, this is how I started my teaching career, I always used to use football clubs because you know, we talk about add-on fees. So you can't put the you know, potential extra £5 million into Brighton's accounts until it's virtually certain. Now, clearly, if they sold the player for £5 million and they've got these knock-on clauses, and, and I had a call from... Um, a, a chief executive of another club about another matter. And during the course of the conversation, he, he revealed that yeah, they, they had signed a player from Brighton. And he said, I, I ate your club. I'm going, oh, why is that? What have I ever done to you? He says, the small print. <laughs> I didn't check it carefully enough. Oh. And we've just, we've just done X and Y, um, which we're absolutely delighted about. And then I get a phone call from Brighton to say, well, you owe us half a million quid for that and uh, uh, a quarter of a million pounds for this. Uh, and by the way, congratulations. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so that, you know, that's what clubs do. Now, as far as Brighton's accounts are concerned, if you go to note 25, Max, you will find um, <laughs> that Brighton potentially are going to receive or could, could have received an additional £11.8 million in respect of player sales. But that was the accounts up to the 30th of June 2022. 
Um, Ostigard was not sold until the 10th of July 23, sorry, 22. And this, again, is something which clubs do. They, they arrange the sales either pre or post the balance sheet date, which is the 30th of June, depending or not whether they want to accelerate or decelerate profits into a particular year for FFP. If we, if we go back to Palace and the sale of Aaron Wan-Bissaka, he was sold on the 30th of June, was it, I think, 2019, which instantly boosted prof profits at Palace by 40 million that year. So Brighton had done quite well in the transfer market in um, in 22. They'd sold Ben White, so they wanted to push it that one particularly back. Um, you can also have things called um, contingent liabilities, which works in the other direction. This is where you've bought players and you've got potential to pay out um other sums. Now that could be to the player themselves or it could be to the previous club. And in the case of Brighton, potentially we're looking at around about 30 million. If, if you go to the accounts of Manchester United, I think Manchester United might have to pay out another 112 million pounds if certain goals are achieved. Now, you know, from, from a fan's point of view, of course, you want those goals to be achieved because it would involve, you know, Bruno Fernandes winning, say, the, you know, the, the FIFA player of the year. Uh, Manchester United doing the double or the treble and so on. So everything is sort of incentivised. Um, but some clubs do this to to a greater extent than others. I have to say, Kieran, that, that sounds like typical snidey Brighton, putting small prints and clauses into contracts, leading other unsuspecting clubs into owning the money when they're just trying to go about their daily business. Um, I should... I should warn listeners as well, Kieran. That was um, Max's question was one of our shorter questions this week. Uh, our listeners are going to need attention span. A couple of the questions, Kieran. I didn't know whether to answer them or mark them. To be perfect, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is going into a second thing. This this um this second question just made me <laughs> it made me laugh a lot. This second question. It, it's it is the shortest question of the week, uh, but it's. Initially, I think our, our listeners will understand why. Initially, I thought this is a very this is a this is a legit question. Of course, it is. I'm looking forward to Kieran's answer. Uh, it comes from Liam Reynolds, and Liam Reynolds says, "I'm curious if it's possible for teams to lower their announced attendance figures to save money. For example, if a team had three thousand fans a game, could they announce their attendance as two thousand pounds? That's two thousand rather to pay less tax VAT on ticket sales over the course of the season." or in one lump sum post-season. Basically, what Liam Reynolds is doing is encouraging clubs to lie here and, yes. de and defraud HMRC, essentially. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because we've, growing up watching football as we did, every single fan at every single club had uh, an urban myth about the one turnstile that wasn't linked to the central county system and that uh, everyone said, yeah, they said it was 15,000. That was definitely 20,000. So clearly this is something that fans think goes on. Um, is it possible for this to happen? I'm sure, surely people are, <laughs> there are simple measures in place to stop this happening, Kieran, aren't there? Yeah. I think it's like the, the Sex Pistols gig at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which was attended by 100, but, but listening to people in Manchester, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I was there. I was inspired by the Pistols that night, mate. Um, but, uh, yes, that, uh, I, I think there's actually there's a degree of uh, validity in the your, your original comment, because if we go back to the 1970s and the 1980s, Football club revenue was probably 90, 95% coming from match day. Clubs used to get nothing. I've got some old accounts from Liverpool going back to about 74 and 75. And when you see the amount of money that the TV companies were paying them, it was it was ludicrous you know, because you only had match of the day or the big match or its equivalent. Um, and, and even in the early, you know, we remember when the first shirt sponsors appeared, it was, oh, it was all a little bit suspicious and you couldn't have them on the matches which were shown for TV and so on. Um, so so clubs, actually, those days, because it was all cash, you know, because there was no such thing as, you, know, you didn't use debit cards or, or apps or you know, any of that type of nonsense. Um, I think it's fair to say that there were some uh, colourful club owners who would um, deliberately understate the attendance for that basis. What we have today, though, if anything, is things moving in the opposite direction. Because clubs want to be able to go to commercial sponsors, to partners, 
and say, look, we've got an average attendance of you know, 20,000, 25,000, 30,000. We have what I can only describe as the pretendants um, operating by overstating the number of people attending the match because what clubs quote are the number of tickets sold. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, it, it, there are there are uh, sort of apps, there are you know uh, some facilities offered by clubs that if you can't make a match that you can you can move your ticket on only if the club has sold all of the match day tickets and you absolutely understand it from the club's point of view. Um, but at the same time, you see, I, I know somebody once did a, a freedom of information uh, request. This, this, this again, this is going back around about you know eight ten years ago. Uh, I, I was I used to uh, subscribe to a Manchester United fanzine. I think it's fair to say were, were quite militant in their approach, and, and it was it was always a fantastic read. And they did a freedom of information respect, uh, request, which showed that probably six to 8,000 tickets at Old Trafford were, were not being taken up on, on, on you know, some of those matches. And, and no disrespect, you know, if it's Bournemouth at home on, at 12.30 on a Saturday. Um, and yes, you know, I, I say I've, I've got lots of connections in Manchester and I know a few touts and, you know, some, some of my tout mates for the big matches, they'd be sending, selling 60 to 80 tickets. So it used to vary from match to match. Um but there is an incentive to overstate, you know, assuming that the clubs aren't going to be involved in fraud because they want to be able to say that you know, we've got a bigger attendance than Club X. They want to be able to go and pitch to sponsors on the fact that they're a popular club. Um, and there's also, and, and I can't go into too many details, I, I am aware of some clubs that deliberately overstate attendances because they are connected to money laundering. And what you do, of course, is that you say, you say we've got 3,000 attending instead of 2,000. So that means you've got say a thousand people at 20 quid each that's twenty thousand pounds which has come into the club um so yeah and it's things like these which which do go under the radar and yeah you know, i'm not trying to be really big potatoes here i know the clubs involved um i know the the relevant authorities have been sort of you know, raising an eyebrow about some of these things um and it, it is part of a much bigger picture in relation to football clubs, and it tends to be more the case in the lower leagues because you're, you're not going to go and buy a Premier League club for you know, you know, half a billion pounds to do a bit of money laundering on on a couple of thousand tickets. D- does the EFL have money laundering investigators? Serious question. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, you know, they they will be focusing on the accounts. Yeah, you know, they'll be they'll be doing their own work. Um, but it's not not necessarily in the EFL. Well, hopefully they will do now, Kieran, because I mean that's quite. I mean that's a big statement to make, Kieran. I mean that's, that comes somewhat of a, of a shock. I have to say that you're fairly confident this is happening in English football. This is uh, this is now we're not going to investigate it because we'll get into trouble. We'll get producer guy to investigate it. He'll, he'll, it's the sort of thing he'd love to. He can outsource that. So the, the, this pretend, that's a lovely word. Pretendence is is a great word. So that includes uh, all the season ticket sales, presumably are included. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So clubs assume that all season ticket holders attend every match. Yeah, they, they will have sold a match, and yeah, life gets in the way. It, it, nobody buys a ticket. Nobody buys a season ticket with the intention of not being able to get to matches. But um, you know, for example. Brighton are playing Manchester City at home in sort of three or four weeks. Um, the match kicks off at 4.30. It finishes at 6.30. There's a rail replacement service. So I've got a bus service from Brighton up to halfway up the you know, up to London. I can't get to Liverpool on that on that evening. So I, I, what I'm going to try and do is, is to get around it, but it could be that on the day I'll just go, I'll just I've worked out, you know, the trains, planes and automobiles. I, I can't get to Liverpool to teach at nine o'clock on, on a Monday morning. So, you know, you know my, my job takes priority and I end up missing at short notice. So I don't go. Yeah. Well, my advice to you, Kieran, would be to let the Baroness book it because otherwise you'll end up in Reykjavik by mistake. <laughs> what you've said yes. Hi, 
I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Our next question, Kieran, this is a, an, an interesting one, very interesting one. <clears throat> and it comes from uh, an anonymous police officer in Merseyside. And the question is this. Do you have a last known address for Uncle Terry? I'm normally a bit reluctant to read out anonymous questions, Kieran, but I, I, I fully understand why this comes from an anonymous police officer. But the police officer says, I've worked covering football matches for Liverpool, Everton, Tranmere and Southport for over 10 years. And during general chat, I was informed that Merseyside police charged Everton and Liverpool the most money in the UK for policing games at Goodison and Anfield. The reason being that both stadiums are banging in the middle of large housing estates and due to there being no purpose-built stadium footprint, unlike most modern stadiums, it requires more manpower. Is this correct? And also following on from this, do clubs demand a specific number of officers? I'm aware that whilst the police take money from the clubs, that cash doesn't always pay for police officers, as the default position is to look for special constables, brackets volunteers, or change officer shifts to cover the football, which has no overtime or additional cost. This only increases profit made by the police from these club payments. It's a very interesting question, Kieran, I find, because certainly for most of us, um, I mentioned when we grew up watching football, the, the police presence at football matches now is so uh, minimal, I would say, compared to what it used to be. And you very rarely see any police inside the ground. Certainly there's always uh, a rather attractive police hall standing at the top of the Homesdale Road. It's very patient, I have to say. But it's um, the, the cost of policing games is an interesting one. It's, it's also interesting well because, it's, you know, Sellers Park doesn't really have a footprint. That's a fairly... You know, old. It's a very old stadium in the middle of a, a residential area. So, I wonder if the same rules apply there. But I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got to say about this, Kim. Yeah. Well, here, thanks again to some freedom of information requests. We we do have the data, and remember, we had Mark Roberts, who's the the head of policing for football, on the show last year, which was very revealing. I mean, Mark said that the the total cost to police forces in terms of you know, additional time, facilities, vehicles, use of police horses and so on, was £71 million, pounds, um, of which uh, the the individual police forces managed to recover only £13.8 million. Pounds. And the reason for that is that if it's on effectively the footprint of the club, then it's a lot easier for the police forces to recover money. Um, whereas if it's on sort of the public highway, then it has to be picked up by you know, the general you know, the general taxpayer. Um, and again, Mark, I think he was at pains to point out that he said that um, some clubs are far easier to deal with than others. So in terms of the question that was asked by... Uh, by, by our listener, um, it's not the case that Liverpool and Everton pay the most amount of money. Um, the, the club that pays the most is Manchester United, which was £1.39 million last year, followed by Manchester City by £1.25. Um, again, if, we, if I, I went back to, to Mark's interview and he said the Manchester clubs are the easiest to deal with because they get safety. Whereas from other clubs' point of view, it's all about trying to minimise costs and they just argue and argue and argue. Whereas the two Manchester clubs, by all accounts, say, look, you know, we we are blue-chip clubs. You know, Man- Manchester United, as we know, if something happens at Manchester United, the whole world hears about it. So 
Um, yeah, Manchester United tend to be good. Yeah, that, there, and of course, there was that match that was cancelled, that was postponed due to to, to fans. So again, that, that was probably helped, Mark. Um, you know, and I'm aware of all of the activities that took place when that match was rearranged. Yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, we were moving into sort of Mission Impossible levels of, uh, you know, faints and double faints and so on, in trying to make sure that everybody got to that match on time. So in the case of the two Merseyside clubs, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool's cost was £671,000 and Everton's £475,000, which means that um, Arsenal um, also paid more than uh, the two Merseyside clubs, but less than the Manchester clubs. Um, Spurs, £423,000. So you know, that was less than half of Arsenal. You say, well, hold on, you know, the, the grounds are, are pretty close. They're pretty much similar in terms of attendance. Um, Palace was two one nine, Newcastle two eight two, and again you think about Newcastle, you know it's sort of centre of the city, but um, it doesn't have it, that, that big footprint itself, and people tend to dissipate fairly quickly. So I, th- I think it is an interesting one. Um, there was also an article recently that um, the, the Premier League had gifted um, uh, the police forces, so effectively from central. Pl- uh, Premier League funds, uh, some in the region were around about £8 million. And that was always a bit mysterious. Um, and again, perhaps you know, somebody can follow that up on a, on a freedom of information to see to which police forces has that subsequently been allocated, because that would be, I think, of interest to, to fans and uh, you know, for, for other stakeholders in the game. And, and what was the motivation of the Premier League? Again, is it they're finally realising if they want to be seen to be getting their house in order, they, ne- they need to start paying. Uh, it does seem ludicrous at the elite end of football when you've got individual clubs squabbling um, over you know, a couple of hundred grand when, you know, in terms of their payroll, it's, it's not a very significant number. Um, is Wembley included in those accounts, Kieran, that you, the data you came up for? No, no. I mean that 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 was in respect of football clubs as right. opposed to the football association. I I could perhaps do a, a check, um, if I, if I'm not too busy distracted by booking flights to uh, Scandinavia. <laughs> I don't see why the Baroness is upset. She's getting a, a free unexpected trip to Copenhagen out of it. Oh no, she's she's absolutely delighted. Oh, now. she's great, great. Um, and then um, without giving too much of the game away, um, somebody at Roma is a big fan of the podcast and, and they've been in contact and, and they've uh, they've invited me to the club to have a look around the facilities and Get do a here. tour. And, really? Yeah, we, we've got, we, we are in international podcast, Kevin. Wow. That's the, I, I know for a fact that the Baroness, that's one of her bucket lists things. She's always <laughs> told me, she's, she said she won't be happy until she's had a stroll around Roma's training camp. <laughs> she, oh, you've made her the happiest woman in the world. Uh, Johnny Foster has our next question, and it's a good one, Kieran. Actually, it's a very interesting one. Uh, it's one of those questions I like. Fairly simple, but the sort of thing we should have thought of ourselves. And Johnny says retro shirts are big business now, and they are. We're having an interview in a couple of weeks' time with somebody about just that subject. But with many of the companies uh, who appeared as sponsors on the front of the shirts having gone pop, what hoops do clubs have to go through to be able to use their logos? Are there any royalties? Still payable, I and mean, that's a that's a very interesting question. If you're buying, you know, I presume Pirelli are still in business, but if you're buying one of those classic Inter shirts from back in the day, and Pirelli weren't in business, would would you have to pay them to use the the logo? Yeah, I, I think in terms of those companies which still exist, they are more than happy for these arrangements to continue because, from their point of view. It's free advertising you know, because they, they pay for the, the front of shirt deal for the current season, but for not for historic ones. So, you know, I, I, and I love old shirts the same as you do. Um, and you look at some of those names. You know, I remember Commodore on the front of Chelsea and uh, uh, we used to have British Caledonian um, and, uh, and not Nobbo which people <laughs> used to say, it should, shouldn't have two Fs at the end um, and so on. And of course, you... you you're at Palace of Virgin, which you know, yeah. one would presume wouldn't exist anymore um, in, in the case of, of advertising and so on. Um, so if somebody, if those clubs had gone into administration stroke liquidation and therefore no longer exist, 
it could have been the case that the liquidator would have sold some form of intellectual property in relation to those companies, including the name. Um, and, and therefore, somebody might say, well, if you want to use our name on doing some retro shirts, we, we would expect a fee. But um, I've not seen any evidence of that. And I have actually asked our secret old football shirts guru, who was, <laughs> who was at this very moment is busily ferreting away. Um, but my understanding is that there probably wouldn't be a fee. Um, what you can't do is that if that fee, if that shirt was originally made by Nike or Admiral or Adidas, you can't use the logo of the manufacturer because they still have the, the intellectual property with regards to that. So for the sponsor's name, yes, but I suspect no fee. You can't use the name of the manufacturer um, un unless you're getting them from certain offshore shirt suppliers, shall we say. Yeah, or onshore, like Tooting Market. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Paul Doddymead has this question. Uh, Paul Doddymead says, would there be an advantage in some smaller clubs running their player recruitment as a profit centre? European clubs seem to charge a premium when selling to English clubs, but many players recruited from Europe this season have disappointed on the field. Wouldn't these risks reduce if scouting and recruitment units, driven by the profit motive, had to identify reasonably priced players suited to the Premier League, EFL, etc., that would grow in value and could then be sold on for a profit in the future? This, this is the first time I've come across this concept, Kieran, of, of profit centre. Um, I, I think the use of a profit centre is certainly used by some Premier League clubs. You know, we, we've spoken at length about the benefits of selling academy players um, because the fee is 100% profit, which is really good from a uh, football fortune perspective. Football fortune exists in League One and League Two, which is their equivalent of um, in their equivalent of financial fair play. Again, we've seen a lot of talk. If, if you read the the Sunday Times this weekend, you've got. Um, Martin Samuel Hrumpfing, uh, and he does like a Hrumpf. Oh, Martin does. Samuel um, Hrumpfing that uh, that Marcus Rashford might be sold by Manchester United because he's a former academy player, uh, and therefore that's pure profit. He's being driven by the balance sheet. I'm, I'm, I'm from an accountant's point of view. Now it's been driven but driven by the income statement, Martin. You need to do some research, yeah. and that's a separate issue, Martin. Um, <laughs> He's out of pop at me. I'm going. Oh, I'm just a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Punch up, not down, mate. Um, so th there is evidence that certainly, as far as the Premier League is concerned, that uh, this is becoming an increasing issue. As far as scouting for for lower league clubs is concerned, they they've got a couple of issues. First of all, if they do scout at a young age. Um, they risk losing their players through the elite player performance plan for a pittance to the Premier League clubs who will just sign them up at the age of 12 and get them to join 2,000 other kids in, in sort of, you know, a, a Willy Wonka factory-style uh, development scheme. If they've got a data-driven scouting uh, arrangement, that's expensive for a lower league club. And if you take a look at the, rev you know, the revenue of a club in... In League Two, we're probably talking, you know, potentially you know, three or four million pounds at the, at the very lowest levels. Um, how much of that can you actually allocate to scouting? So, yeah, they certainly are trying to recruit the younger players. They're trying to identify talent. We're seeing a change in recruitment um, in the post-Brexit world um, because all of a sudden, one of the hot markets for player recruitment, and this is for lower leagues. Um, as Paul was, uh, was was hinting at, as well as the Premier League clubs and the Championship, is Scotland. And the reason for that is that the, the clubs just realised that you can, you can recruit a player at the age of 15, 16, 17 from Scotland, but of course you can't do that now post-Brexit until the players are 18. And the danger is um, you, you, you think about uh, Fabregas coming to Arsenal at the age of 16 from Barcelona. Yeah, an absolutely brilliant player. Under under freedom, freedom of movement, that was perfectly allowed. Um, that's not allowed anymore because we're, we're operating in a, in a new environment, which means that you have to start uh, looking elsewhere. So, so we're, we're starting to see changes as far as recruitment is concerned. There's more emphasis on recruiting young players, uh, again, profit-driven, 
Um, going back to uh, Max Healy's original question, um, you know, Brighton do this. You know, for every Caicedo or uh, you know Cucurella that they that they buy cheap and sell high, there are two or three Ostigards or Gaiocares or, or so on who never reach the first team. Uh, you know, in the case of uh, Ostigard. They signed the player in 2018, first season on loan to St. Pauli, second season on loan to Coventry, third season on loan to Stoke, fourth season on loan to Girona. Then during the summer, they sell them for Napoli. This is a player that never actually played for the club. As a Brighton fan, I wouldn't have been able to recognise the lad. So so, we are seeing clubs doing that. And it's easier to do that at the Premier League level because they've got the resources and they can pay the wages and, and so on. It's more of a challenge for the lower league clubs because... They, they simply, you know, every penny counts to that, that extra degree. Going back to the Chalky issue, you know, if, if I was looking to cut costs, rightly or wrongly, scouting would be probably one area because it's not going to impact me next week, two weeks' time in the next month when we're trying to win a couple of matches to get out of the National League South into the National League and so on. Mm. Must have come as a, a shock, Kieran, to a young, innocent journalist like Martin Samuels to suddenly discover that football is a business driven by profit. There he, there he was in his romantic world of uh, writing obituaries about standbowls in the good old days, and suddenly, what? Clubs of businesses? Oh, my goodness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chunter about this. Jesus. Uh, you're, in, you're in good company, Kieran, don't worry. Uh, two questions. We, we have two questions and a statement <laughs> left to come. And these two questions are about football, <laughs> about football overseas. Um, and this, uh, this, the first one is from Adam Allcroft, and I think this is a really interesting concept. Adam Allcroft says, I wonder if there's a missed opportunity with football clubs in popular tourist areas. For instance, Benidorm is a city that had 1.8 million overnight stays in the first half of 2022. As a man after your own heart, Kieran. He's got, his, he's got his spreadsheet out. However, says Adam, its football team, Atletico Benidorm, is in the seventh tier of Spanish football, and you can't even find a record of their attendances. For towns like Benidorm and other cities that are inundated with British tourists over the year, is there potential for clubs to directly advertise to tourists and build a worldwide fan base that could sustain them at much higher levels? Football tourism is a big business for the legendary clubs, but with the right marketing, it could also be a fun day out for travelling families. I think Adam's struck something there. I, I, I think it'd, it'd be a lovely bonus for any holiday if you can just go, actually, there's a game on. I mean, most of us, when we're travelling, we'll, we'll look to see if there's a game on somewhere. So why not? Why doesn't someone like Benidorm try and formalise that? Um, I, I, I see the positives. Um, if I was to go away with the Baroness to Benidorm for an overnight stay and we arrive in a flight and they say, I'll see you in a few hours, I'm just popping off to watch a seventh division yeah, Spanish yeah, match. Point. Yeah, yeah. Think there could be there could be a frostiness um, on on the Costa. Um, so if I, I if, if me and you and so producer guy went away for the for the annual which has never yet happened uh, price of football conference on on the continent, we'd probably do that. But we'd probably go somewhere like Berlin or somewhere to to watch a match. Um, Seventh tier football. If you've got a group of lads, that's what they would probably possibly do. Yeah. But yeah, there like are that. there are distractions um, when you go abroad, um, which normally involve so doing a tie up, tie ins with hotels, discount packages. I, I think that would be really positive, but I don't think it would work in in picking up a big audience and also. Um, as far as getting a long-term fan base, you, you might have a bit of an affection for them, but it, it could be a bit like a holiday romance that it was okay for the one, two or three nights it lasted. But when you get home, it's very quickly forgotten about or you're too embarrassed to tell your mates about it. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm looking forward to the Price of Football Lads weekend away for you two teetotalers. <laughs> uh, okay, well, was, we, we're going to a museum, are we? Okay, right, fair enough. Uh, when we go into football, oh, okay. <laughs> Ian Webb has our last question, and Ian Webb 
lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He lives in Chattanooga. Ow. I wonder how he gets to work. I wonder what train he gets. Always the opportunity to say Chattanooga choo-choo. It's just too good to resist. But Absolutely. Ian Webb lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and says, recently I saw advertisements for the Powerball, a big lottery that can win you up to $87 million. I've never played the lottery, but my question is, if I did and I won, what would be the best way to invest that money in my local club, Chattanooga FC, so that they can have sustained success for years to come? Chattanooga FC does not have its own stadium, but it rents out a 20,000-seater from a local university. It also doesn't seem to have a dedicated training ground, but it has a decent-sized fan base, three to 5,000 in attendance home games. It has great branding and a great club culture. All it needs is the right investment. So should I splash the cash on a stadium and facilities? Should I spend millions trying to get maximum eyeballs on CFC by enticing Gareth Bale out of retirement? Or is there another way to spend the money that I'm not thinking of? I'll tell you what I I took away from that, Kim. It's an interesting question, but the fact the local university has a 20,000-seat stadium, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, um, college sport in the States is absolutely incredible. If you take a look at the highest attendances, it's actually for college baseball and uh, yeah, their yeah, gridiron and so on. Um, I I somehow ended up at Stanford a few years ago to give a guest talk on something to do with something. Um and they took me on a tour of the the college facilities. I was just going, this this is bigger than the biggest stadium, <laughs> yeah, in, in England, yeah. And it, it's 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 part of uh, sports culture. The players are unpaid. You know, a lot of them will get scholarships because American universities are very expensive to attend. Um, but it's, I can absolutely understand. Um, you know, it, it it's it's a big day out, and they've got the they they've got the. They've got the space in America to have you know, parking facilities for car, you know, for five thousand cars, and everybody will be there you know, having their barbecue before the match. It's it's an incredible thing to observe. Um, in terms of what I would do, Ian, I would always you know, do the boring things. I would build from the ground up. So the last thing I would do would be to entice Gareth Bale out of the golf course um, to put on a shirt again, because you'll get a short term spike and then people will very quickly lose lose interest yeah how how many people these days are, are watching cristiano ronaldo from the uk uh in terms of uh you know him playing in the saudi pro league for example um so in terms of investing uh i would invest in infrastructure facilities not not necessarily the ground you know, if if you can if you can ut- utilize the college stadium you've got a decent rent we'll do the same as west ham yeah you know, west ham have not suffered from from renting their stadium but academy, training facilities, general sports, psych stuff would, would be the route I would go down. Um, if you're thinking of one day trying to join MLS, uh, the franchise fees, which were $100 million in 2013, well, the most recent one, which I think was San Diego, uh, is costing $500 million as an expansion fee. So, if you, so you know, the, the MLS is now getting bigger and bigger, it potentially, potentially we could be reaching a situation where it might go either an East and a West franchise, or we could have two divisions, um, because they've actually they've actually realised that relegation is quite exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, half a billion dollars just for the privilege of being able to play in MLS. David Beckham for Inter Miami got a, a deal as part of um, when he went to play in MLS himself that they said, if you want to set up a team, you know, and his, his his advisors would have said, we want David to come. He wants the opportunity to own a club. And, and they, they cut him a deal on that. Now, this last, um, as, as I say, it's not a question. It's, it's a statement. And it comes from George McMahon. And I just want to read it because it touched me, Kieran. Actually, really, it did touch a chord. And I hope George doesn't mind if I, if I paraphrase here because it was quite a long statement but George said he was listening to us talk recently about the uh, league tables from shoot magazine that they used to give away cardboard league tables with the, all the teams little cardboard tabs and you would keep the league table 
Uh, In my case, you would do it for two weeks and then the attention span would drop off. But George McMahon said it it brought back happy memories of his granddad who died last year in his mid-90s but was still updating his shoot league tables right right till the end that he'd he'd kept. uh, And he said, uh, George says, as a kid, his happiest memories were rushing around to his granddad's house to make sure they were up to date because George said, as a football mad kid, he knew all the league tables in his head. And not only that, but his granddad made his own tabs for teams, new teams that came into the league. He would make his own tabs. And he had a little collection of tabs for teams that dropped out of the league in case they ever came back. So I, I just thought that was it just brought back some very happy memories. And I just uh, I just thought that'd be a nice thing to read out. So thank you for sharing that with us, George. And thank you to everyone who's donated to Pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, it'd be very kind of you. And it gets you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you've got a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of football.com. And if you want any of our books or merchandise, you can go to the same website, price of football.com. We'll be back on Thursday with our news update. Hopefully, We'll have spoken to somebody from Torquay by then, um, and we'll bring you that uh, if possible. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks for everybody that does get in touch, and, and you know, things like Georgie's stories are, are just great because it does take us back to our youth, and it was amazing. I, I, I don't think I ever lasted the full season no, though. I don't think anyone my did. Shoot tabs. <laughs> it, it, it did have a bit of a, a, did have a bit of a drop off, but. Uh, it was always very important to get those early early season ones where you got the full set of tabs. Otherwise, it was life was miserable. Um, you can you can support the show in a variety of ways. Uh, if if you want to have an advert free variation, there is a Patreon option for that. Um, but there's another way you can support the show. That's uh, to give us a review. It helps us with uh, helps us with the the credibility of the show. And by by gum, we need it at times. <laughs> um, so. You could write whatever you want by all accounts. It doesn't really matter. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Orson Welles and Frankie Dettori. Wow. Which I think I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Orson Welles was one of my heroes as a kid. I never quite understood what he was, but I just knew that he was an extremely cool person and slightly bonkers. Wow. You get, you, I mean, Frankie could just play hide and seek behind him, couldn't he? That was a... <laughs> yeah. That was a that was a from left field that one. Also, yeah, he was. I mean, I was watching a, a Michael Parkinson uh, retrospective recently when Orson Welles, this giant of a man sitting there with a cigar, looking quizzical at Michael Parkinson and answering his own questions rather than anything Michael Parkinson. But having him and Frankie, I mean, Frankie, uh, uh, Frankie wouldn't be able to sit still long enough. Unfortunately, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, like all jockeys, he's a little bundle. So, where's he got? Oh, he's over there. there Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the